Can I ask you a question? Which do you enjoy the most? The presence of God or the presence from God? Which one excites you the most? Reading God's word, praying to God, fasting to God, giving and worshiping God because you have been in God's presence or the things he gives you because he's good at your job, your family, your kids. All these things are meant to bring us back to God himself. In the real sense, his, the presence from God ought to lead us back into the presence of God. But if what he is doing for you does not lead you back to him, may I submit you are, you are mishandling the gifts of God. One of the things that I'm really enjoying in this season of my life is that I have at the house now uh, uh, two kids. I have, a, I have a seven-year-old and I have a three-year-old. And, and this is a very unique and great season, which I know steps into the house. I, I, I pull up in my uh, uh, to the house. They, they hear me uh, in the truck. I get out, and before I can step in, she's just saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And my daughter, who's seven, she's changed that from Father, Father, Father. And they hug me. They kiss on me. They hug me. Kiss on me. Even late last night around 10.30, my daughter came from downstairs. Yes, my daughter, she is a night crawler, I say. She does not go to bed early at all. She comes into the office while I'm praying and, and finishing up, and she says, Father, I love you. And she gives me a kiss. Buddy, my son, there's never a time when he gets, out, when he gets up in the morning or goes to bed when he says, Daddy, can I kiss you? Can I kiss you? See, in these moments, I've, I've done nothing for them. They just simply love being in the presence of the Father. Without me having done anything for them, they just know that their daddy loves them and they want, they desire to be in daddy's presence. Is that you. See, from, from, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God has desired not only to be omnipresent, but to manifest his presence to his kids. From the Garden of Eden, we see God walking in the cool of the day with Adam. When, and and from the, and with the Jews, those, who, those whom he set his love on, we see him visiting them in the temple and tabernacle. But yet, the, the greatest miracle is God himself make, uh, 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 tabernacling in the flesh in the incarnation of Christ. That, 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 that we believe as Christians that God himself dwelt on earth in the body of Christ, that God was on earth, that in Christ, God manifested his, the exact image and expression of himself in the Son. 
but also it was in his incarnation that Christ would go to the cross and die. Peter says this, that Christ also suffered for the sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. But why did Christ die on the cross? Why did Christ give up his life? Why did he shed his blood? Why did he do this? Peter says, because that he, because he wanted to bring us, God in Christ wanted to bring us to himself. See, Jesus, God allowed Jesus to die for our sins and in our place that we might be and enjoy his presence. Let me say it again. God allowed Jesus to die for our sins and in our place so that we could enjoy the very thing we were created for, to be in the presence of God. This is what my friend and mentor, he says it so well. That his presence, he said, place where we enjoy God and we are satisfied by his presence. He says this, that God then is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, it is in his presence that he satisfies us. It's in his presence we began to understand his his rule, his reign, his power, his sovereignty, his holiness, his might, his strength, his love, his justice. We, it's in his presence we begin to understand who God is. It's in this manifest presence of God that God in his grace begins to reveal more of himself to us. This was so great and so good to David the psalmist. He said this, but for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I can tell all, so that I can tell all about what you do is the manifest presence of God your good? Not the only presence, not, not, not the kind of presence where he's everywhere at all times. I mean, this, this manifest presence of God where he fills you and satisfies you and reveals more of himself to you. Thus, does, does this presence of God satisfy you? See, it's, it, it's when we begin to abide and to rest in this sort of presence that God, he, he sets a desire in us to, to live for him. It's in, as uh, uh, Paul says, that this is why God called us into fellowship with his son that we might enjoy, enjoy him and also delight in being made like the one whom he called us into fellowship with. It's in his presence 
But we desire to be conformed to the very image of Christ himself. I would submit to you this is why Christ raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places and left us on earth that we might, that we might display, that we may show off to, to the world a kind of God that is good, loving, and forgiving. See, 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 he raised us up and left us down to live this sort of upside-down life that we see in the Bible. And this is what we're going to be journeying, uh, 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 traveling through over the next several months. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And again, we're going to hear from, we're going, we're going to go through the longest sermon ever recorded in the Bible, yet preached by the greatest preacher of all time. It is in this Sermon of the Mount where he's going to twist us and then convince us that this kind of life is upside down towards the world. It is kind of cultural. It is not normal that the life that God has called us into in his presence is not the normal type of life. And I pray that over the next few must that we are challenged to live this upside-down life for the glory of God and for the good of our soul. So we'll be in the, in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, so if you will please uh, find in your Bible or on your device Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 1, we see what is called, we see uh, the genealogy and birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter C, we see how Christ is going to be rejected. In Matthew chapter 4, how a person, and he's going to fulfill scripture. It is in Matthew chapter 4 where we see Christ, he is baptized. I mean, uh, 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 no, in, in Matthew chapter 3, he is, he, he, he is baptized. But in Matthew chapter 4, he, he withstands the enemy and is not able to be the savior of all because he triumphs over Satan by not giving in to sin like the first Adam did. So in this chapter also, we see that he is, he is commissioned and sent to do the work of the Father. There's also, we'll see that he would not circumvent the cross. He would not back down, back off, or back away from going to the very thing that would ensure salvation for all of mankind. So we're going to find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read for you uh, verses 12 through 17. Again, again, again. As we jump into Matthew chapter 5, beginning next week, our goal is to see what it means and how it looks to live this upside-down life in the presence and person of Christ. And you see how I will get that, uh, get that in a minute. Uh, let me read for us uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. 
through 17. In the word of God reads, when he heard that John, he, Christ, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Verse 13. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zubalon and Nephtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zubalon and land of Nephtali, among Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who, who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach. Here it is. Repent. Because the kingdom of God has come near. We're going to see two things over these next, uh, uh, over, these, over these verses. We're going to see the condition for Christ's ministry, and then we're going to see the content of his message. We're going to see the condition of Christ's ministry, or for Christ's ministry, then we're going to see, then we're going to hear the content of his message. Look at verse 12 where it says, when, we, when he, Christ, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Condition number one, John the Baptist, that is the cousin of Christ, is on lockdown. That because John did not shy back from preaching God's truth and calling out Herod, the Bible says that John was put in to prison. Now, 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 understand, before John is put into prison, most scholars believe that his ministry lasted some ministry, but his ministry was, was the greatest man then. That, that, that even though his ministry was short-lived, he was the greatest to be birthed from a woman, the, the Bible says. Because in his ministry, he did a few things. Number one, he caught the attention of the nation. Number two, he awakened the conscience of the people. And number three, he had the privilege and honor of baptizing and introducing his cousin, Jesus. So when Christ comes on the scene in John is in prison, really, his mission is complete. Now, now understand that royal protocol is this, that, that the king does not, appear, does not appear until the forerunner has done his job. John is in prison and arrested. Now the king, now the Christ, now the promised Messiah that we see in, in the Old Testament has arrived. Listen, listen, listen. Before Matthew, there had been 400 years of complete silence from God. There was no prophecy of God, but now all of a sudden, the prophet from God, the prophet who is God, steps on the scene while John is on lockdown. 
John is on lockdown, but also we see in this that, that Christ, he leaves town, or he leaves his town. It says that he withdrew into Galilee, verse 13. He left, he left Nazareth and went to live in, in Capernaum by the sea, and the reason in the region of Zubalon and Naphtali. So here it is. After John's imprisonment, Christ has no, has no reason not to stay in Judea. So he leaves Judea, packs up, goes to a place called Capernaum. Capernaum would be the headquarters it would be the center. It would be the place where Christ would do most of his miracles. So Christ, he leaves the place, his hometown, Judea, travels to Capernaum. And all of this we see is, 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 is all in God's plans. So John is on lockdown Christ, he leaves town because, again, he goes to the city where, he, where he, he's going to do most of his miracles. And then we see he goes to a people or to a place that are down. John lock, is on lockdown. Christ leaves town. The people are down. Look at verse 15 through 16. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zubalon and land of Nephtali. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light. He mentions Isaac. A little background in this. He mentions Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 9, when Isaiah is pinning his, his uh, uh, when he is pinning on what's going on with the people, uh, with, with God's people, in Isaiah chapter 9, they had, they had been taken into captivity by the Assyrian army. So it was because of their disobedience that God used the Assyrian army to take them captive. You fast forward many years forward. Now, now the Jews are in captivity under the Roman Empire. Different time, same thing. Because of the disobedience of God's people, he's using, in a sense, Gentiles to discipline them. When you see that Christ goes for where, where uh, he mentions five areas, Zubalon, Nephtali, uh, 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 Galilee, uh, 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 uh. Uh, uh, he mentions all of these regions. No, 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 no. So you, you have these Jews who were disobedient. They are surrounded by Gentiles who don't know God. And God is using them to discipline his children. And so you can imagine. I mean, look how, look how, look how the Bible describes their situation. The people who live in darkness, they are, they are living in darkness. 
They are living in the land of the shadow of death. Now, whenever you see the idea of, uh, uh, whenever you see the, uh, uh, the word picture of darkness, it is a metaphor. It is likened to people who are without hope and danger and fear. That God has allowed his people to go into a dark situation because of their disobedience. So, so three things I, that I see here. Darkness. First of all, there is, there, there, there is a, there, uh, 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 when I see uh, the word darkness, I think of delusional. Like mentally in the dark, you can't even see anything. They're living in a situation. They're living in, in a place where they can't even see God. It is so dark that they, that they are delusional, they, that it's dark, that, that they're dark in their minds. But also, they, they are surrounded by people who are depraved, wicked, corrupt, and good. I mean, uh, wicked, corrupt, and evil. So here you have the Jews in a dark situation that they're living in. They can't see their way out. The people around them are not for them. And so you know that they are disheartened. They have no hope. They have no hope. Now, their own disobedience got them here. And here is, here is, here is the glorious thing about God. He leaves them there for a season. But look at what the text says. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has done. In a situation where they are unable to see God. In a condition where they are unable to pursue God. In a situation where their hope in God is gone, God shines forth. A few, a few years ago, some would say uh, I was put in, I was raised in a hopeless situation. Raised in the hood, didn't, didn't know, didn't know my dad, went to church but was not focused on, on the person whom church was about and that was Christ made a few decisions uh, that landed me in prison. That landed me around people who were not seeking God. The last time I got put into prison, I'm facing 25 years federal time. I recall my lawyer saying, Valentine, man, listen, man, you're, the, the, there's nothing that I, that I, can do, but see, it was my disobedience that had put me in there. 
I'm in there, and, I, and, 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 and I'm not trying to seek God. The people around me are not trying to help me seek God. And my hopes and my situation, it seems hopeless. But God. <laughs> I remember when my lawyer named Chip came back in about three or four months later. He, he said, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who you called, who you are talking to, but the feds are willing to give you time served. I went from, from, from facing 25 years federal time to time served but God. But not only, not only in that, it was also in here where I, where I began to really hope against hope that God began to use me to hold a Bible study in federal prison. The chaplain who had never before allowed a Bible study to be held on a floor level said, Valentine, you can lead a Bible study, but God. I get, I leave Tennessee, come back to Texas, still facing 15 years. The judge said, time served, but God. Man, God will step into a situation. God, he will step into whatever condition, no matter how dark it seems, how dark it feels, but God, he can shine a great light. He can, give, he can bring dawn to a dark situation. Doesn't this seem similar to all of us in the room? Paul says this in, in Ephesians chapter uh, 2. He, uh, uh, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses. And sins. You didn't want God, was not seeking God. You had God nowhere on your mind. You were dead to God, and God was dead to you in a sense. You were dead in your sins, Paul says, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the power of the earth, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, Paul says, we. All of us were to all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the, the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under the wrath of God, deserving the wrath of God. As others were also. Verse 4 says, but God, <laughs> who was rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. Listen, God did not wait for you to come alive to seek him. God entered your deadness, quickened your spirits, said, come seek me now. Come follow me now. Come live for me now. See, 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 that's the beauty of salvation. Salvation is not you seeking God, but God seeking you. It's God quickening you, not you been quickened to seek God. You were dead in your sins. I've never seen at a funeral a dead person respond. Never have, hopefully, I never will. If I do, I'm gone. Laying dead, unable to move, un not desiring God at all, but God. <laughs> he, 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 he came. 
out of his great love for you, not your love for him, out of his love for you, he came and he rescued you. He entered your dark and dead situation <laughs> and made you alive in him. How often does this message fall on dead and dull ears? This is the gospel in scripture. That Jesus, the light of the world, broke into our dark, sinful situation and made us alive in him. But how? How did he do it? How did he move us from the dominion and domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? How did he make us alive who were content of his message in verse 17? It says, and from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here, Jesus, as often as he does, he gives the command before the promise. He gives the imperative before the indicative in this context. He said the first words that came out of Christ's mouth when he started his ministry was repent. First word. But see, his first word doesn't save you. Repentance does not save you. It's the one who has spoke the word repent is the one that saves you. It is the word of God who spoke the word that saves, that, that repentance has never and never will save anyone. Repentance is the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. It's the effect of salvation, not the cause of salvation. I love how my distant mentor and friend said this. God does not begin to save because we repent. We repent because he's already begun his saving work in us. <laughs> we got to get it. God does not begin to save us because we repent. That means that he's now moving off us. If I do something, then he responds. No, that's not salvation. God responds. God acts first, then you respond later. He says, God does not begin to save us because we repent. We repent because he's already begun his saving work in us. Repentance, in short, it is the initial, here it is, ongoing work of God granted by God through the Spirit for us to receive and to experience the kingdom of God. Start again. Repentance is the initial and ongoing work of God granted by God to experience the kingdom of God. Biblical Repentance is not what many of us think. So let me just walk through this for a moment and just explain to you briefly what is biblical repentance. Number one, repentance is oriented 
towards God first, not the man. Repentance is oriented to God first and not man. Y'all remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David, slipping out in war, sees this fine lady that he wants, tells one of his soldiers, hey, man, go, go, tell her come over. Man, I, I want to holler at her real quick. Just tell, her, tell, her, tell her to the man, come over. Y'all know the story with David. He calls her in, and they have what we call relations. She gets pregnant, and now David has to disguise what he's done. So he does it. He, and so, and so in, order to, in order to cover his track to be killed. You got no story? Now, he's committed adultery against Bathsheba. He's had her husband killed. But Psalm 51 is the psalm that, is, that goes into correlation with David's act with Bathsheba and her husband. And look what David says in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, God, and you only, have I done what is evil and in your sight. David, but you, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against her husband. Yeah, I did. But I, I, but I sinned, I mainly, and, and primarily I sinned against God first. See, whenever we sin against people, please don't get it twisted. Though that's true, but ultimately you have sinned against God. So it is oriented towards God first, then man, but then number two, it is produced by God and not by man. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25, the lost servant must not argue, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and be patient, instructing his, his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God would grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Listen, whenever we repent of sin, turn from sin to God, that's a grace granted from God. No one in this room is able to repent of their own will. It's a grace from God. And whenever you turn from sin to God, that's a miracle of God. Imagine you turning from sin, the thing you delight in, the thing that our own nature wants to do. Whenever we say no to sin and yes to God, that's a miracle. Every time you repent of sin and go towards God, that is a miracle of God. Praiseworthy. You allow God to work in such a way in your life where you said no to the sin you love, but he died for, and you chose God over your sin. Y'all, let's give God some praise every time we turn from sin to him. Number three, repentance is, is towards God, not towards man. It is, it, it is granted from God, not by man. It is, it is motivated by godly sorrow and not self-regret. For godly sorrow, godly, godly repentance. And 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, 
produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. I got to have a second. True biblical repentance, when you have turned from sin, turned to God, leaves no regret behind. There's no shame behind. There's no guilt behind. There's no regret behind. Well, you've turned and you've clinged to, cleaved to God, who is greater than your past sin. <laughs> this says that repentance is in and never come back to Jesus. That's not repentance. Judas felt sorry over his sin and grabbed the rope and killed himself. Peter denied the apologies. I'm sorry. It's all about you. Repentance is all about God. I've learned now the hard thing of telling my wife, not that I'm sorry, but now I have to identify the sin that I did. That, y'all, that is the most humbling thing in the world. I got to identify. Not to say, babe, I'm sorry for that. Please forgive me. Okay, okay. For what? For what? For what? Okay, 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 okay. God, I'm sorry for being angry and sinning because it's okay to be angry and yet not sin. God, but I was angry and I sinned. So let me first get it right with you. God, I'm sorry for being angry with my wife for leaving a bowl of cereal out for two days. Shallow, shallow. I know it is, but that is real. And maybe I've treated you differently because you left that cereal out for two days. And I've avoided you, didn't call you at work. I want you to feel my anger. So I repent of my first being filled with the Spirit. And not doing what the Bible says, the love, that, 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 that love covers a multitude of sin. Baby, that wasn't a sin. That was a preference. That was my preference. Do you see the difference? Biblical repentance is different, than God, uh, 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 is different from worldly sorrow, okay? But it is motivated, moved by God. And then, and then number four. Biblical repentance is concerned more with God changing the heart than changing our actions. I'm sorry, I apologize, ends with the actions. It never addresses the heart. (laughs) But when I repent, it addresses the heart first, then changes the action. You get that? I'm sorry. Forgive me, yet you go back and do it because there's no change in your heart. But if you truly repent, not saying that if you repent, you won't do it again. But there's been a change in your mind to leave the sin you committed and to cleave to the God who's called you to himself. And because of our sin for nature, we will at times commit the same sin. But that does not mean you did not repent the first time. We're sinners saved by grace. I can truly repent today and truly sin against you tomorrow. And what I did yesterday was really real. 
Okay? Last thing. Repentance looks to God through Jesus for the deliverance from the penalty of the power of sin. You see this in Acts 20 21, where it says, I, in verse 21, I testify to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In short, look what I'm saying. Whenever repentance is at work, the triune God is at work. It is the Spirit of God that convicts us of the sin to then turn to God the Father through God the Son for our sin. Okay? That's biblical repentance. And as we begin to hear sermons over the Sermon of the Mount over the next few months, listen, the way to growth, the way to experience what we're going to be talking about, which is the kingdom of God, which Christ himself is. So, y'all, so let me just say in short, when I say the kingdom of God, I'm speaking of the kingdom of God in four ways. First of all, the kingdom of God has always existed. That the kingdom of God in, in a basic meaning is his reign and rule over his creation and people. So, so, so to say God's kingdom is not to say God's people or God's realm. God's reign, his sovereign work, it actually produces a people. It actually causes a, a realm for himself to, to live in. But God also, because he's king of all, he can also act outside of that. So in a short meaning, the basic meaning of, uh, of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule and reign expressed in his action, seen in his lordship, and demonstrated in his sovereign governance. And we experience this four, like, this four sense, like this four-tier kingdom or, or tense. His rule has always been, that is, he's always had his kingdom before he formed the world, and then in Christ Jesus, we see that the kingdom has come. So, so it existed before creation, but, it, but it's come in Christ. Now it is continuing as we believe and trust in Jesus. His kingdom, his rule and reign is now moving through his people. So here it is. It was, it was before creation. It came in Christ. Christ was the literal kingdom and king himself. The in Christ is God's kingdom. In Christ is the literal presence of God. And he came. Now he's moving through his church. Those who actually believe in him in faith, they now have his rule and reign in them. And yet there is this consummation of Christ to come. That when Christ comes back, he will finally establish his kingdom for good. Satan will be gone. Sin will be gone. Sickness will be gone. And Christ, when he came, he showed y'all how the kingdom would be in eternity. That's why he came telling the mute to talk, the deaf to see, the sick get well, the blind you can see, the dead get up. He came on earth giving glimpses of what the kingdom would be in eternity. In the kingdom, there will be no more sickness, no more suffering. No more pain, no more tears. And when he comes back to finally establish his kingdom, it's called the consummation of Christ. 
when he comes back, listen to how the Bible describes this. In Revelations 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adored from her husband. Yo, the kingdom will fall down from the sky on earth. You're going to see a new Jerusalem and a new earth come down from the sky. But that shouldn't excite you. What should excite you is verse number three. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. We will see God in all of his glory. Not just getting a glimpse of God here and there in our lives. When, when the new earth, when the new heaven come down, listen, we're going, we're going to be God's people and he's going to be with us. Listen, there'll be no need for a sun, no need for the moons. He will be the light of heaven. Shouldn't that put an ache in your heart for him to come now? Come now, Jesus. Come now. If that's the truth, come now. Rid of all this hurt. Rid me of all this pain, this suffering. God, will you please remove my arthritis? Please, cancer and diabetes and sugar, all that stuff will be gone. I can't wait. I want to be there right now. That's why Paul says, for me to die is gain. Come get out of here. Then he says, in verse Four, to those who lost a loved one, those who suffered hurt and pain, look what he says in verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Take me there. I want to be there. And here's the truth. In a real sense, spiritual sense, we can experience this now in Jesus. Except without the sin. Because we're still suffering in this earth, on this world, the effects of sin. But in heaven, sin, Satan, and death will be gone. So let me close this way. So what are we left to do? I heard you. What, what, what am I left to be and to do? What am I left to be and to continue? I'm got to ask. And, they, and on, on, on October 31st, 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, uh, he set in place what was called the, the Reformation period by nailing at the Council Church, uh, uh, what was, uh, it was in Wittenberg, Germany, what has been called the 95 Thesis. This was the beginning of what was what we call the period of Reformation. His very first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, 
at that moment, he willed, listen to me, the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. On the surface, like, man, will I ever grow? See, see Luther is not saying that we, will, that we will never grow. Luther's point is this, that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life, that we enjoy and experience the kingdom of God. Listen, if you repent little, I promise you, you are experiencing little the kingdom of God. Is your life characterized by turning to God from sin, by turning from God from you, by turning to God from what he wants over what you want? If your life is not marked with repentance, I submit and I say, you are probably not experiencing the fullness of the kingdom. Every child Heels, but like kids that belong in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been raised up with him, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But he's left us on earth to live like we're living in heaven. Upside down living. Father, I pray that as we go through these next series of sermons, that we'll be found repenting. That is, allowing your spirit, allowing the spirit of God to convict us of sin against God, that we might enjoy and be refreshed by the presence of God as he grant us the means and ability to repent of our sins and to please, cling, hold fast, embrace God. Father, we thank you, and we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name.